Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda, Danny Abdeljabar. Danny, what's up, my uh, my good friend? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. The feedback on our Gorkistan episode, Gorkistan, the most important country you've never heard of, has been doing pretty well. We've, been, yeah. we've got uh, quite the positive feedback. Agreed. <laughs> I've actually been um, looking at uh, Google Trends lately, and we got a little bit of a spike for Gorkistan. <laughs> for Gorkistan, kind of the intention. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is that the complaint that I've got is that we spelled the name Gorkistan wrong. What? Like how? So I people have insisted that Gorkistan is spelled G O R K I. S-T-A-N, instead of the way we spelled it with an A, G-O-R, G-O-R-K-A, Stan. That's how hmm. we spelled it. And people are insisting that we spelled our own creation, the name of our own creation, incorrectly. Well, that's our own baby. flagrant, but I'm glad that that's the complaint that they had and not something else. <laughs> that is the complaint. Here's, here's but, my official response to that. I think, you know, as we mentioned in the show, the Gorkistani people don't really have a written language right they just speak it and so you know how it's spelled is subjective kind of like um momar gaddafi like how many spellings of gaddafi have you seen in your time it's like gaddafi with a g gaddafi with a k qdafi with a q <laughs> there's like a million different ways to spell it so well that's the lost in translation type thing you know arabic to english and you right. know they used to call the early briefs of Osama bin Laden was all Usama That's with correct. U instead of an O. That's correct. So I think it's more of a lost in translation thing. But Gorkistan is spelled G-O-R-K-A-S-T-A-N. And uh, the Gorkistani people. Fun facts about Gorkistan. Gorkistan is the one country in the world where the average height of w- women is taller than the average height of men. That is Very true. strange. Yeah. Very strange country. Think of all the Gorkistan facts. That's actually a great way to fill up our reviews. Think of a good Gorkistan fact, and then we'll use it. We'll say a, Gork- a funny Gorkistan fact every single week if you guys include that into the reviews of this show. And then you also have to give us a five-star rating as well. Yep. But um, <laughs> we're not going to read it if you give us a negative one. However, if you give us a positive review, we will read the funny Gorkistan stats or facts on on air. So we'll start it off. The average female in Gorkistan is taller than the average male height. 
Um, True story. And then you could always say, well, it's brought up because there's actually a, a you know, a 22-foot woman there, a tribe. Of, there's it's a whole tribe like of, them. of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, some, some travelers to Gorkistan thought that they were, like, descended of, like, ancient Amazonian women. That's what they thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a very wild place. And for people who don't know who, who uh, what we're talking about, I'm sure people <laughs> who, are, who are tuning in just to listen to our take on the current crisis in Sudan... Um, Gorkistan is a country that we created as a backdrop of a, of a Broadway musical that we're both writing, um, to be released sometime in the next, uh, I don't know, probably two decades or so. Yep. But, uh, not to bore you with that. The, uh, well, the other thing that we need to bore you with as well is that, uh, if you guys haven't filled out the survey yet, the survey monkey survey, that is the number one way to support our show. So please do that. You can win $500 in Amazon cash, which is always fun. Think of all the cool stuff that you could buy. So please go ahead and do that. Um, Someone's, you know, I'm sure you guys have significant others or girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever that you need to get birthday gifts for like I have too today on Amazon. (laughs) So just do that. (laughs) Um, Just do that. And I wish I had $500 in Amazon dollars to buy this stupid foot massager that is really expensive. Well, Henry, um, okay. you know how you can get 500 Amazon dollars is just fill out that survey. Just so. keep on filling out the survey. I think <laughs> that's fraud if I do that. <laughs> Some type of fraud. Um, okay. So on a serious note, we are actually going to be talking about a real country this time. Um, and honestly, it's not really a fun topic. This is actually no. a sad topic. And um, it's not, um, you know, it's not good. And... We're, we're talking about the current crisis in Sudan and uh, do kind of like, you know, probably an awkward segue, but we're talking about Sudan, um, the current conflict. If you guys have been following the news, it's right now, it's, it's probably the big, well, new conflict zone in the world. And it's, it's sort of appeared out of nowhere, but it really didn't. It's been something that's been festering for a really long time. And, and Sudan is a country that has kind of been through perpetual periods of violence. But this one is kind of unique. It's not like the old violent, uh, you know, conflicts that were more or less ethnic related. This is less ethnic related and, and or, or maybe it is more eth- or more ethnic related than, than, than we know. But, you know, the two, the two, uh, guys who are fighting each other are both Arab. Now, um, the 15th, April 15th is when the fighting started. And it's basically the two major military factions in Sudan are fighting. So it's the army and then it's the, it's the, the largest paramilitary force. And at this point, so we're recording this on the 26th of April. It's Wednesday, 10:52 PM Eastern standard time. At the very least, hundreds of people have died. Hundreds of people have died. Uh, I don't know really what the body count is, but it seems like uh, it. You know, it's 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 most likely higher than the hundreds that are being reported. Four hundred by the uh, those people WHO. Are, by the way, how much? Four hundred, according to the World Health Organization. But you know. Who knows? Yeah, because the fighting is going on in mostly urban centers right now. That that's we know right. Of. And, and that's that's really where the, the re- recording is happening, out in, in Darfur and uh, rural areas of Sudan. I don't know how they would keep count of that. Yeah. So, excuse me while I sip a drink of water. Now, so, um, 
in a nutshell, just to kind of explain the situation in, in a couple <clears throat> of sentences. So the 30-year strong man of Sudan, Omar Hassan, Hassan Ahmad al-Bashir, he was the he was in power for for three decades. He recently left power in 2019. Um, what he had done, he created two rival military factions, basically to balance each other out, so one side wouldn't get too powerful. Well, turns out both of these leaders of these military factions, one was the official army, and one is like the 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 largest paramilitary group. They conspired together to overthrow Al Bashir in 2019. So he was removed from power. And uh, three years later, now they're fighting each other, which was kind of the expectation of you know what what could could happen because these guys were long-term rivals. So the current situation, um, that's what's going on. I mean, that's that's kind of like the dynamic right now in Sudan. But before we jump into that, and I and I really think it's it's worth talking about this because, and this was something that we wanted to do an episode on. We've been getting a lot of requests on doing episodes on the scramble of Africa and and, and um, you know the colonization of Africa and Europe. And, and this is actually this this is actually a project we are working on for the future. So some of this research kind of comes straight from there. Um, I've always wanted to do, you know, kind of a dedicated series on this subject. So um, I guess we'll talk about the colonial history and, 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 and even the ancient history of Sudan, because it's really interesting. And modern day Sudan, and, and really, most African countries, um, you know, they, they have, they're extremely complicated. Yep. And, and I'll be honest, and in, in my in, in our um, assessment of what's going on in Sudan, it's there's no way that we're going to be able to give you some sort of accurate uh, forecast or accurate really anything. We're just we're just kind of speaking from a really really far distance, and you know we're neither of us like anything else. We're, we're not experts on on this, but um, hopefully this just kind of provides more context in the overall history of of Sudan. Uh, in this battle between these two big warlords. So if you pull this back, and if you look at most countries in Africa today, they're countries that include many different people who had never really had any sort of relationship with each other before the state was created. And if they did have a relationship with each other, they saw each other as different groups. So this is the reality in most in most countries in Africa. So um, especially, well, most countries that are south of the Sahara, the the only real exceptions of of countries in Africa that are that are ethnically uh, homogeneous are Somalia, where the the vast majority of the population in Somalia they're ethnic Somali, and then Rwanda, where I think at least what eighty five percent of the country is is Houthis. Yep. Um, so it's those are like the most ethnically homogeneous uh, countries in Africa. The rest of them are it, there's just there's many different ethnic groups, different many different nationalities, and the reason why they're like that is because the countries in Africa are so big. But um, 
more importantly, the borders. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The border. I was just gonna say more importantly, the borders. <laughs> That's probably well, the reason yeah, why the they're borders so. and just the, the pure size of the countries in itself. Because mm -hmm. most countries in Africa, or not not most, but many countries in Africa, you can you can kind of slab them in the middle of the United States, and they would they would take up a significant portion. Like they would they would they go north to south from Texas to Minnesota, right? So especially Sudan. So, um, or at least Sudan before it was carved up and, or, or, you know, before it balkanized, but the borders were drawn up by Europeans at the, at the Berlin Congress. And what they really did is that they just circled lines around resources and not people. Mm -hmm. So they didn't really give a crap about different ethnicities and if they would clash or not, um, if they were under the same state, AKA the same monopoly of violence. So because of this colonial history, these borders in Africa right now are just extremely arbitrary. Right. And to quote unquote say this, and this is like the word that you see that you that you hear a lot is tribal warfare. And I'm trying to avoid, I don't want to sound like some green haired, uh, you know, annoying uh, college sophomore at Ber Berkeley right now, <laughs> um, you know, being pointing out the politically incorrectness of this. But. I really think it's just like on an academic sense, um, calling it tribal warfare is, is, is actually not even right. Um, right. It, tribal was, was really used uh, by Europeans, mainly the British, to say, hey, these people are less than ethnic groups. They're not really nations. These are just tribes. And that was really a, a tactic or just verbiage it's, that would... It's very diminutive, right? It, it reminds me of how the U.S. spoke about what was going on in Puerto Rico back in the fifties as like a, you know, a squabble between Puerto Ricans when in fact there was like a huge nationalist movement that was happening that eventually, you know, spilled over into the United States. But it's very diminutive to say, you know, these, these, uh, uh, conflicts in Africa are just tribal, tribal warfare. Is that what yeah. you're trying to get at? And, and, and honestly, I'm guilty of it. I've, I've 100% said tribes and when explaining conflicts in Yemen and stuff. And, and mm -hmm. I don't think it is the correct term to, to say. I think it's, it's, it's nationality and ethnicity is really the, the more accurate way to describe what's going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're right. In our vocabulary, tribe is less than a nation. And I think that's why the terms were used. Um, but there are different groups. There are different ethnic groups, and there's and there's there's um, in some cases there's hundreds of different ethnic groups in within one country, in Africa, uh, because remember most of these countries are really big, a lot of parts are remote, so a lot of groups don't even really have contact with other groups, or they, they do not interact. have contact with other groups or interactions with other groups until you know, the, the 19th, 20th century when, when they were, you know, uh, in the same, uh, you know, uh, governing sphere or, or, or became, or they really, most of these problems happen, you know, uh, post-colonial era in the 1950s when, when there's kind of the vacuum from the, from colonial powers and, and different ethnic groups are, are starting to, or trying to rule over the other ones. Right. So, um, I know maybe we should touch on the geography because that is really important. Yeah, for sure. And, and in the case of Sudan, and, and you kind of hinted at this early on, the first thing you really have to realize is that Sudan is huge. It's, it's enormous. It's the third largest country in Africa. 
uh, land-wise, that is. It's 700,000 square miles. Um, well, I should say before 2011, um, Sudan was the largest country in Africa in terms of square miles. It was about a million square miles, but that ended up changing when uh, South Sudan broke away from a larger Sudan. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. Um, but basically, it stretches from north to south, uh, excuse me, from the north to the sub-Saharan Africa and from central to east Africa. So it's, it's a giant chunk. Take a look at it on a map. It's, it's fairly big. Um, it borders Egypt in the north, Eritrea and Ethiopia to the east, uh, the Central African Republic to the southwest, Chad to the west, and Libya to the northwest. So it's got a lot of neighbors, um, and that definitely plays a lot into the political climate as well. Uh, and it also has about 450 miles of coastline on the Red Sea in the northeast. So, you know, on, on the border, um, when it goes all the way up from Uganda to basically the Congo, and then the Nile runs straight through the center of the country from north to south. And Sudan is basically the country where the White Nile and the Blue Nile converges to form the main Nile. And I think we might have touched on this uh, a few episodes back, talking about the water crisis uh, when we were talking about Ethiopia in particular, uh, because there's a lot of uh, countries that that uh, that the Nile runs through that kind of have to all cooperate with one another about water, you know, and uh, how that gets distributed and where it gets dammed up and how that impacts people further down the line. But again, more context that we, we might cover uh, a little bit later. Um, something else you have to understand about Sudan is, is that different regions have really, really different levels of development. So the northern like desert region closer to Egypt is the more developed side, you know, and that's where the capital Khartoum is. And then the central savanna region and the southern forested region, they're a little bit less developed. And that's primarily where a lot of their resources are coming from. The majority of its people, there's 46 million of them, live in abject poverty. Uh, their annual average income, uh, I think this is as of 2021, was $750 a pers per person for the year. 750 bucks. So give you a little context into how they're living. And in general, the demographics are predominantly Muslim population. Uh, they speak Arabic and English as the country's dual official languages. Um, and again, just kind of talking a little bit about the, the strategic location that I mentioned before, you know, it, since it's on the Red Sea, and it also sits on the eastern part of the Sahel region, which we'll talk more about that has a lot to do with some gold uh, that's involved in this whole story. And of course, the Horn of Africa, all of this, like where it sits, it, it attracts a lot of regional powers as well as some foreign powers from abroad to kind of influence that particular region because it, it is you know, a really important part of Africa. And as a result, things like political upheavals and conflicts in the neighboring countries like Ethiopia and Chad and South Sudan have, have impacted the region uh, a lot, especially in the last couple of years. In particular, and I think we talked about this in our Ethiopia episode, their relationship with Ethiopia has been really strained over not only just the Nile River and, and the water uh, situation, but also over uh, disputed farmland uh, along their border. And uh, obviously, there's some major ge geopolitical dimensions at play here. You know, people like uh, countries like Russia, as an example, the U.S., Saudi Arabia, the UAE, all of these big players are looking to influence Sudan in one way or another. Yeah, and, and then it's their neighbors as well. So Egypt and, you know, Libya, well, Libya post 
uh, pre well during Gaddafi and and now um, you know different warlords in, in Libya are you know they they kind of funnel money to different rebel groups in Sudan. But I think it's worth talking about that. I mean, Sudan has an ancient history, right? You have to remember this. So Sudan was once known as Nubia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these were civilizations that settled along the Nile River, and they were influenced by ancient Egypt. Uh, Nubia was actually part of e- ancient Egypt from around 1500 BC to 1000 BC or so. I'm not sure. something around that. But they were... A um, long time ago. <laughs> a long time ago, they were, you know, part, they were under the, the, the pharaoh's rule. And um, another interesting thing about Sudan is that they're one of the first regions to to go Christian, or that Christianity was introduced to. Um, Egypt and, and uh, Sudan, there was um, a very large Coptic Christian population in the 3rd and 4th century. Now, when you fast forward to the 7th century, you know, the Arabs uh, the Arabs conquered Egypt and, and, and the rest of northern Africa. The people who lived in Sudan actually, they actually defeated the Arabs, so they resisted the Arab conquest. However, over time, and this was really inevitable, Arabs would migrate to Sudan. Um, most of those migrations came from Yemen and, and the Gulf, and they eventually became the dominant cultural and language in in the region, um, in the north, that is. So I think something that's important is to to realize the term Arab. So when you say Arab, what most people think of are just, you know, are, are you know, brown skinned people from the Middle East. That's kind of the, the going definition. Mm-hmm. The term Arab is is actually more of just a, a cultural linguistic heritage rather than a you know a race of people. So you can have I mean, Arabs come in all different sizes or all different colors. Basically, you have, um, you know, you can you can find white or lighter skinned Arabs who have more of a heritage from from the Mediterranean. Maybe their ancestors are from Greece. Maybe their ancestors are from Turkey. Maybe they're from Central Asia. You know, they could you know, they can it can really be anywhere. Um, You also have black Arabs. Like you know, just look at the ruling class in in uh, Sudan. They're they're most of them are are dark skinned Arabs. In Egypt, in many cases, like Omar Sadat and Nasser, were were dark skinned Arabs. So, Arab is not a race. It's it's a linguistic culture. It's a it's a, it's a culture that developed over over a thousand years, and um, different parts of the Arab world are very different from each other. So just in terms of dialect, if you speak to somebody in Syria or if you speak to somebody in the Gulf or if you speak to somebody in Iraq or Sudan, their dialect of Arabic, Arabic is going to be very different than the dialect of somebody from Morocco or someplace. So it, it's Arabic is more of a culture thing. And I think a really easy way to compare it or a good way to compare it would be like Americans. So... Americans don't consider themselves a race. Well, maybe some Americans consider themselves a race, but <laughs> yeah, some of them. Uh, there, maybe maybe there are some people who could consider Americans a race, but um, you know, it's it's kind of like that where you're American really by culture and and by being born here and and all that. So, um, um, Arabic, the language Arabic, 
the reason why it was it, it moved around so much is it's not just because it was the language of the Quran, but it was also the language of business. So you have a situation where all the people and most people in the Nile River, there's there's sections in, in like the mountain regions in the north of Sudan that that don't you know, they're they're more mixed in terms of Christians and, and Muslims. But I guess we're not even really talking about Islam. We're, I guess we should keep it focused on, on just Arabization rather than Islam. Right. Or linguistic Islam. differences. Yeah. Um, so the most developed parts of, of Sudan become culturally Arab. They're all along the Nile River. Now, in the West, we define race as something very absolute. So you're either white or you're a person of color or you're black and um you know your 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 race is really just based on like you know seen as like what color your skin is in other parts of the world specifically africa black means something different or could mean something different than than um than what it does here um for example in ethiopia there's some people in the north in Tigray who will call uh, Aroma or Somali or Amhara people black. And they're not black. So in not Sudan, there's the American same thing. standards. They're, yeah. They're, so in Sudan, there's, this, there's like the same thing where, um, you know, black people who are, who are uh, not culturally Arabic, they're the ones who are called black. I see. While the 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 black Arabs are you know considered not black, so, right, it's, so it's just not, it's not like it's superficial like something skin different. color. Mm-hmm. Yeah, skin color and race and like terms like they're they mean different things in different countries and different cultures. That's what I'm trying to say. So, right. and, and I'm just saying that just to avoid any type of confusion when we as we talk about this because we're gonna start saying things like there's genocides and stuff against these groups and that people, but. It's it's different, and, and I admit that I'm obviously no expert on Sudan or Africa or any of this stuff. I'm just right or race relations uh, or, or yeah or race relations. I'm just <laughs> yeah. um feel like talking about it, and it's interesting to explore these topics. It's kind of hard not to talk about it for this particular uh, topic because there are a lot of uh, um, conflicts and divides that center around these differentiations of people, and you know just trying to level set on what we mean. Yeah. And, and I just want to also make it, make it clear because again, like the, there's a difference of what we're calling culturally Arab and then all, and Muslim. There are, there are different things. Again, culturally you can have Christian Arabs. Um, right. There's plenty of Christian Arabs. Mm-hmm. When we say Arab, it doesn't really have anything to do with being a Muslim or not. There are tons of Muslims who don't speak Arabic who live in Africa and Turkey and Indonesia and, you know, the, and wherever other parts of the world. So, um, this Arabization, the process of Arabization. So the process of people from North Africa, really, um, starting to speak that dialect that came from the Gulf doesn't actually really even take place until a thousand years after the Arab conquest. So the Arab empire didn't forcibly convert people. That's something that's kind of mis, mistaught where 
or it's like in, in popular history, like, well, during the Arab conquest, they, the Arabs came and they conquered everyone and they cut everyone's head off who didn't convert to Islam. <laughs> That's actually not true at all. That's not the real case at all. Maybe there were some isolated incidents, but that wasn't like the historical norm. The, the Arabs were not like the Mongols where they were, you know, super genocidal. They were shockingly tolerant in compared to those standards. And the reason why they didn't convert people to, to Islam is, is for a very practical reason. Is, is In uh, Islamic law, they couldn't tax other Muslims. So if they were going to have a tax base, they couldn't mm. go around and turn everyone into Muslims because then they would get no tax revenue. So they kept right. people out. It was less, it was less inclusive. It was more ex- in- exclusive. It was more about, um, you know, using people for tax revenue. So if you convert everyone, you you're obviously going to suffer your your tax your your tax base. So th- that that is kind of like a false in history that didn't really happen. Now, um, the process of Arabization. It really takes place through just trade and commerce, just like the process of people speaking English. It happens through like just shared media, books, whatever. Um, it doesn't. It didn't happen through you know aggression. And um, the regions next to the river systems became Arab because they're the ones who had all the commerce. Now, on the flip side, when you look at Sudan, remember this is a big country. The people in the south were very different. So they were mostly Nilotic people who were, um, you know, Nilotic people who, you know, they're spread out across South Sudan, now Ethiopia, Uganda, Kenya, uh, the Congo, Rwanda, uh, Tanzania. They're spread out like all across Central and, and, and Eastern Africa. And, you know, uh, you know, Nilotic people are very tall, very dark skinned at that time or during, during this time period, they were, they were practicing traditional African religions in modern times. A good portion of these people are actually are, are Christians and they're not culturally Arab. And, um, they, you know, they're different from the people from the North. Now, Sudan and just also to add, the people in the north, their heritage was nilotic. So it wasn't like they had these different heritages. They they both kind of stemmed from the same groups, but just the cult. There was a culture difference. The culture because shifted. If you go to North Sudan, there's still there's still like super tall, super dark skinned people as well. Now, um, Sudan is conquered. They are conquered by Muhammad Ali of Egypt, not the boxer. <laughs> that would be funny though. <laughs> um they're they're conquered in the early 19th century like 1818, I forget the year, but they're conquered early in the 19th century. And Muhammad Ali was a governor of the Ottoman Empire. Um and then he eventually kind of rebelled against the Ottomans and he got like de facto independence from them and and uh Egypt basically you know wasn't kind of ruled on its own. I, I forget the exact agreement they had. I'm not an expert on this, obviously, but they he had enough autonomy where you could consider him like the first Egyptian dynasty. Um after after the uh pharaohs, that is. After the pharaohs. 
after the colonial period or no, bef- um, af- not the colonial period, after the ancient period. Now, right. then you have the other region that you have to know about in Sudan is Darfur. Darfur. And Darfur is kind of on the outside looking in. Uh, Darfur is on the western part of Sudan. They're more culturally linked to people in Chad and Niger. So um, now what makes this more complicated is the people of Darfur, they're mostly Muslim as well. So there are different, there there are different Islamic kingdoms in that area over a long period of time that stretch in like around Chad and and Darfur and, and Libya area. So they also went through the process of converting to Islam, but they didn't go through the same Arabization process. They were completely into, they, I mean, they were completely independent from what is considered Sudan to so the people on, on the, on, you know, who are on the, the Nile River. And these areas were more developed as well. You know, Darfur is a desert and is kind of, you know, secluded from, from the rest of, uh, the rest of Sudan. And the reason why Darfur is incorporated into Sudan, um, I guess in short, is because they side with the Ottomans during World War One. So they're on the losing side. I get and it. They lost their, their independence to, to being the losers, basically. Yeah. And the British, and, and this is kind of a complicated colonial history as well, the, the relationship between the British and Egypt. Because what happened is that um, the British came in on behalf of Egypt to administer Darfur. It, it was actually really more so British textile industry who, who wanted that because Darfur is a area where it's really easy to grow cotton due to the climate. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, way, it's, it's a lot easier to grow uh, cotton in Darfur than it is to grow it in the American South because it doesn't really get that winter period. There's not that frost period. Um, so the... I mean, it- this is getting a little bit confusing. I thought you said that they were part of, um, that, that they were a colony of Egypt, though. Yeah. So this is something that that I should clear up. So the relationship between Egypt and Britain is confusing because what happened was that Egypt was ruled by the Ottoman Empire um, until the, around the 1830s. So I forget the exact year where they get their they get their you know de facto independence, but um, it had it became this de facto independent state, like I said, Muhammad Ali. And then Muhammad Ali, when he was in power, he pursued this massive modernization process for Egypt that included, um, you know, basically just like the development of a modern army and then the construction of infrastructure and canals and railways. Well, all this was funded by Europe, by European loans. And as a result, Egypt just became really heavily indebted to European powers. So... There's this big financial crisis in Egypt in the 1870s, and um, basically the government was about to fall apart. And what happened was that, um, you know, they were unable to pay debts. And then in the late 19th century, the British the British moved in, and you know they had too much financial interest uh, between the Suez Canal and these other industries that they invested in. The French did as well. The French were the ones who really spearheaded the the the, the growth of the Suez, but the British just kind of yoinked, yanked it from them. 
and uh, the British came in, they occupied Egypt, and then um, they were they were essentially invited by the Egyptians to just be the to run the government on be, on behalf of them. They said, "You guys come they in." They were and a deal protectorate, with it. basically. You, yeah. you deal with it. So they weren't, I guess, an official colony, but they were a colony. Um, they were they were a satellite government. The the British ran the Egyptian government. So it's this kind of complicated situation, but they inherit Egypt's possessions or the or the land that was annexed by 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 Egypt essentially. So the British basically absorb Darfur into a colony of Sudan, which causes all sorts of future problems because the people of Darfur were not Arabs; they're not considered Arabs. They become. Um, you know, they become this minority dominated by another ethnic group. And Darfur is a desert. So the British realized that besides the cotton agricultural uh, regions and, and, um, and the cotton growing, the British realized that there really wasn't that much they could do to, to, develop, to, to uh, develop anything there. So um, they didn't. They, they didn't really invest in developing the region. So um, all the economic development from the British, it was all in the eastern part of the country, close to the Nile. So um, another thing about these desert areas is that they're really hard to define. So you have, they're, they're very um, transient societies where, where people can just go back and forth. You can literally just walk back and forth across borders there's no one to, there's no one like guarding borders like borders not in like desert. A, a wall <laughs> yeah there's no wall there's no great wall between between these different countries you just walk over there's no and you don't even recognize it you're like okay and as oh, a result oh, oh, people migrate countries. over right people migrate oh, no, over probably don't chat. even realize what do I do mm-hmm when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The border police from Chad are going to pick me up. I, I, walked into, I walked into the wrong place. Oh, no, I walked into... Well, most of the time, they're not even going to know, right? There's not a, like even a demarcation, right? <laughs> it's not like a sign like, you yeah, are now leaving Darfur. To, to many of these people, they these states may as well be made up states that we made up, like Gorkistan. They might as well be right. Gorkistan. They don't know. Mm-hmm. It doesn't doesn't concern them really. 
um, you know, unless there's some type of state violence. But um, so let me jump to um, let me jump to the independence. So this becomes a bigger problem after Sudan gained independence in 1955 because the people who take control of the state are all from the Arab elite in the east. So in cities like Khartoum, that that are you know the capital, mm-hmm. and this situation leads to really active rebellion in, in two different regions. Southern Sudan is where it starts. Um, so remember, these people are African Christian Nilotic people. They're very different from the people from the north. And then throughout the next five decades or so, the north and the south are in perpetual war with each other. For and then they have some brief periods of peace. Um, South Sudan is actually the the lead broker in the peace deals here, so, so hopefully it's you know it works. But um, there's a there's a long history of violence between the two countries during this period, and um, there's a war in the early 70s. There's another war in the early 80s. They're basically the same war with like a 10 year ceasefire, um, but it's it gets pretty bloody, and I don't know what the exact death toll is, but you know it's anywhere between like. 500,000 to like 3 million or something. I, you Jeez, don't, you don't really know, but it's a horrible, horrible war with a lot of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the main roots of these wars between South and the North is that is that the Sudanese government tries to create an Islamic state. The, um, the colonel who was in charge before the, the strongman dictator, his name's escaping me right now, but he had to consolidate power he was trying to kind of enforce islamic sharia type laws and that's what that's the the straw that broke the camel's back when it came down south that they were they were gone so um now they don't get their independence though until 2009 so we'll get to that but um one of the main so things change this doesn't happen because there's a new guy in power and in the late 80s, um, 1989, you get a guy named General Omar Hassan Ahmad el-Bashir. So el-Bashir, he's dictator for 30 years. Um, he was, he had, he'd really only recently been deposed in 2019. And when al-Bashir comes to power, what he's primarily dealing with or what he's dealing with a lot is what he's probably known for is the rebellions that break out in the Darfur regions. And and the Darfur regions, again, they're extremely poor. They're neglected. There's no resources that go into them. So wars break out in Darfur. These wars are... Ahmed al-Bashir is extremely... He's a despot. He's very brutal. Um, It becomes very bloody, very racialized, too. So... You have these Arabs fighting, you know, quote unquote, black Muslims in the West. Mm-hmm. And then you have Muslims, all these basically. horrible militias that are, there's, you know, mass horrible stories about rape and genocide and just horrible, horrible atrocities that go on in this war. It's absolutely terrible. And um, it's it's just real, it's just real uh, bad situation. So Southern Sudan, um, like I said, they become independent. I said 2009. They become independent in 2011. I got the date wrong. And they had a lot of international support. And especially from the Bush administration, 
the Bush administration, kind of the second Bush administration, they kind of spearheaded and got the ball rolling on it because there was a lot of evangelicals who supported them because they were Christians being dominated by Muslims. So al-Bashir, he basically makes the call, these people, hate, these people hate us from the South. You know, we can't integrate them. We're just too different. Like, there's no point. We just better let them go. But in the Darfur region where, you know, there's an act of rebellion going on in the early 2000s, they're less inclined to let them go because they, they are Muslims. So they're not, they're not going to let them go. They picked so, the wrong religion. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's kind of like the, in a nutshell, history of Sudan. I know it's not, you know, thorough, but I, I just wanted to give that background before we, we jumped into more so the current conflict. And some of it might be relatable. Some, you know, there's some, diff- obviously some key differences given that, you know, the power brokers are from, you know, our, our, our Arab. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll kind of explore it and, and, and see what we find or if there's any conclusions that we draw. So, like I said earlier, the conflict follows a successful coup by the same two generals who are now fighting each other. They actually had been sharing power for the past 18 months, and Sudan was in the process of transitioning to civilian rule in the coming months. You know, surprise, surprise, the civilian rule doesn't really happen. It's very hard to transition to a civilian government when, you know, there's just decades of, of uh, military coups and really just a country ran by strong men and, and mostly the security state. Um, this power struggle between Sudan, Sudan's two most powerful uh, political personalities, warlords. Um, so the guys that you need to know are General Abdul Fatah el-Burhan, He's the chairman of the Sovereignty Council, and he's a de facto president. And then you have Mohammed Hamechi. Everyone calls him Hamechi. And then Hamdan Dagolo, um, the leader, and he is the leader of the RSF. And he is the vice president of Sudan. And this guy... That's the rapid, um, rapid Support Forces, by the way, is RSF. I don't know if you said that out loud or not. Yeah, Rapid Support Forces. So the RSF is a, it traces its roots back to these real ugly militias who were putting down rebellions in in Darfur. And a lot of the rebellions in Darfur were just like, just horrible ethnic violence. But they would trace their backs to roots of, um, of basically like these horse riding Janjaweed militias that used to go in and, and um, attack people. And, uh, you know, they were, you know, there's all these accusations of, of them committing, um, you know, acts of genocide in the early 2000s in Darfur. So we have this war right now or this conflict. I guess it hasn't really turned into a full-blown war yet. And there is a ceasefire in place. But you have a war. Both guys are Arab. I believe that uh, Hamechi's family is more from a Banduan kind of nomadic Arab tribe. I'm not really sure the politics of that or not, but he's more from like kind of the rural area, country bumpkin type person. And so he tries to make appeals to people and um, who are more in Darfur. He has like this real big, vast uh, 
network of different militias. And, you know, a lot of these, these generals, these, these strongmen, general warlord types, they, they, they outsource their violence to other groups. You know, they're not all Arabic. There's a lot of source. There's a lot of groups that they outsource, you know, uh, and, and kind of have to make loyalty packs with. Um, so he's kind of his strong point is more in the West in the rural areas. And then the, the president, El, Al Burhan, is, is more of kind of like the deep state guy. He's more of the president and, and has more of the Arab elite on the, his side. Um, but both they're both, you know, kind of. Uh, you know, they both have Arab last names at the very least. So they're sponsored by different groups for the most part when it comes to uh, just like their networks. Uh, Burhan is, again, he commands the SAF, so the official government. He has support of what most people call the Sudanese deep state. So it's just that network of crony capitalists. Uh, companies that are entangled with the army and, and the uh, intelligence and the, and the Isla, Islamist networks. Um, Al, Al Burhan is also connected deeply with Egypt. And then Hamechi is, um, again, rapid support, rapid support forces, RSF. They have a closer relationship with the UAE and then Libya, and not specifically the state Libya. He has support from really the 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 militias and the groups that the UAE backs. So we're talking about Khalifa Haftar. And Khalifa Haftar was the ex-Qaddafi general who kind of spooked on him and betrayed him. But then he came back. He, he worked a lot with the CIA. But now he's, he's back as like one of the key power players in Libya. Um, his son is like really connected to, um, to Hamechi. So there's there's a connection there between between um you know the UAE uh, Gulf Coalition and and um, this this new guy. So it's it's all very complicated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's it's important setup because it kind of dictates how how the the current conflict goes down. And, and maybe I can take a little bit of that. Um, you know. The, the, the current situation, the power struggle that, that Henry's outlined already has roots, you know, in the years before the 2019 uprooting, uprising, I should say, that that basically ousted al-Bashir, you know, that the 30-year strongman guy. Um, and so the RSF was created initially by Bashir to, to suppress those rebellions in Darfur, just like you mentioned, Henry. And, you know, that was more than 20 years ago. Uh, and he set it up due to those basically the political and economic marginalization of, of the people, you know, by Sudan's central government. Then a little bit later in 2013, Bashir transformed those Janjaweed militias um, into the uh, RF, RSF, um, basically made them a semi-organized paramilitary force, uh, but they weren't actually official at that point. And I think that's probably the reason why they weren't official is because, you know, like we had mentioned they are accused of doing ethnic cleansing in Darfur, so probably a better idea to have that done by some dark group rather than the official, uh, you know, armed forces. But you know, the RSF has has become pretty powerful. You know, they've intervened in in conflicts not just in their own country, but also in places like Yemen and Libya, and uh, they also have gotten into the gold business, which I'm interested in talking about in a little bit. 
Um, but it wasn't until like 2017 where uh, a law was passed that legitimized the RSF as an independent security force. Uh, and this is where they really start, you know, picking up. They've been accused of, like I said before, human rights uh, abuses, uh, including the massacre of uh, over 120 protesters uh, in 2019. Um, that was during the, the, uh, the coup. Um, and the important part to note is that, that this deal, this power sharing deal that was going on during this time, it was with civilians who were trying to transition towards a democratic government uh, and basically the powers that be that wanted to hold on to their power. Um, and that's pretty much what sparked that coup in 2021. And since the 2021 coup, Sudan had been governed by a council of generals. Um, and in particular, uh, the two guys that we mentioned before, Al-Burhan and, and Hamedi. And the two generals basically have a fundamental disagreement about the country's direction, which is what is putting us in this situation. Uh, so the things that they disagree on are transitioning towards civilian rule. Uh, and some of the other key issues include integrating the RSF into the, the regular army. And who ends up leading that new force if they are integrated? So, you know, they're all vying for power. They don't necessarily want to transition to civilian rule. And if they combine the RSF into the regular military, then who is the leader of said military, uh, which obviously causes a lot of problems. Um, but basically, since that 2019 uprising, you know, the, the cause of tension has been because the civilians have been demanding for more oversight in the military um, and, you know, to, to make the RSF into the regular armed forces instead of having this like dark military group on the side. Also, civilians are looking to uh, transfer a lot of uh, military holdings in things in, in different sectors like agriculture, trade, and industries. Because uh, you know, since the uh, uh, uprising, everything's been run by the, the military, uh, um, you know, coup basically, and so they want to take over civilian power for for all of those industries. And a few other points of contention include, you know, trying to get some justice for war crimes that were alleged in the Darfur conflict, um, also killings of pro-democracy protesters in June of 2019, and also just for uh, to stop the delays in the official investigations into those things. Um, so basically, uh, Hamedi here claims that his forces are fighting uh, for democratic progress of Sudan, while General Burhan supports returning to civilian rule, but only will do that when they have an elected government, which is obviously being blocked. Both of these generals, both of these guys are, are suspected of wanting to maintain their position of power and wealth and influence, which is the clear subtext. Um, but it's interesting to see how they're, how they're spinning their, their conflict to get people on different sides of the fence for this one. Now, the, the actual conflict itself, the one that we're talking about today, it started uh, about two weeks ago on April 15th, uh, 2023. And this was after the army, the regular army, perceived the, uh, the redeployment of, of these RSF members around the country as a threat. So basically, RSF was moving some people around and the regular army got spooked and that caused the, the, the whole tension here. And, you know, there have been hopes that the talks, that like just diplomatic talks could resolve the situation but but no negotiations have occurred in the in the in the last two weeks and it's 
like I think we, we mentioned this before, but the fighting is taking place mostly in, in urban areas, uh, especially uh, Khartoum, the capital, um, where the Sudanese Air Force has actually conducted airstrikes there. Uh, and that city has like 6 million people. So could you imagine like a city of 6 million people getting airstruck? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy situation. Um, we were saying at the top of the episode that you know, it's really hard to, to calculate the, the death toll so far. I've been reading a bunch of things. So I know that at least 185 people were killed uh, and thousands were injured in the first three days. Uh, and the World Health Organization is saying that it was over 400 civilian deaths. It's really hard to tell, um, but it's bad and it's fast. Um, and they've been announcing ceasefires to try and let people escape, um, but those ceasefires have not been held to. In particular, there's a lot of like uh, um, non-Sudanese nationals, uh, like expats, even Americans, who are basically stuck in Sudan right now trying to flee, and it's been very difficult. There's this whole, whole thing going on with some American citizens that are trying to get out right now, uh, and I just hope that they find a way out to make that short yeah and this is this is like the not a priority for for the u.s government right now unfortunately yeah it's It's, not it is it is not a priority for the state department they're like what they're like fuck (laughs) i mean that's not the last situation with with ukraine and china and a bunch of other places that what's unfortunate about is that that we don't yeah. got yeah um yeah it's definitely not it's definitely not a priority i guess what i was reading from the quincy institute from um their guy who covers it alex d whale or I'm forgetting his last name sorry it's late my memory's horrible um basically he was saying the most junior people in the biden administration are the ones who are handling it and they're just kind of delegating Jesus. it to other people that's kind of like the Let's inside get the scoop. intern to figure out the Sudan crisis, yeah. right? <laughs> Yo, uh, Johnson, get me the intern who uh, gave me that macalato. Um, you can do it. Hey, uh, hey, Sonny. That's fucking crazy. You went to UVA, right? Can you figure out this uh, little problem going on in uh, the third largest country in Africa, square mileage? Here you go. Take my office. Um, figure it out. Figure it out. Ah, who cares? Well, it's fucked up. It's really fucked up. Let's go arm Taiwan. Let's go start a war in China. Um, so I think some keynotes about the differences is that, so there's two sides. The SAF, so the, the, the army is obviously better equipped, so they have better weapons. They're the ones airstriking. They're the cartoon. ones doing the airstrikes and have the planes and all that. I'm not sure if the RSF has planes or not. Um, I'm but not they're sure the ones, either, who, actually. Yeah, they, they're, they're the ones who are better equipped. Though on the flip side, though, the RSF they have more combat experience, so they are the veterans who are because you know Saudi and UAE they outsourced their soldiers from Sudan, so a lot of the soldiers who if you look at a lot of the soldiers and a lot of the fighting from from the war in Yemen between the Houthis and 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 the the Saudi coalition they're all mercenaries you know they're almost all of them are mercenaries almost they're they're all from the Sudan they're all from you know real radical areas and you know basically al qaeda groups in in Yemen those were the those were the groups that were that were you know the Saudi led coalition fighting the Houthis were were mercenaries from Sudan, and 
they were Al-Qaeda. You know, the worst, the worst people on earth. So those were, these are veterans of that war. So they have more combat experience. And then there's also the, the army, you know, they, they, they control different resources. So the army controls all the agricultural assets and oil flows. However, the RSF, they run all the gold mines, which is Sudan, Sudan's largest revenue generator in recent years. Yep. Because it's a lot, it's a lot, I mean, it's more lucrative and easier to mine gold. It's, it's literally gold. <laughs> yeah, it's literally gold. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Um, then the... I guess the real threat and, and the reason why this is can turn into something much worse than just kind of this limited conflict or more regional conflict is that I think a lot of people kind of expect it to draw in other armed factions because eventually that they're going to have to do that or they will do that. I mean, both fact, both like factions will, will pull in other factions to do their bidding and a lot of it will be disbanded rebel groups, which had previously laid down arms to join Sudan's political transition back in 2020. But I mean, this is serious. Both generals have said that they will kill each other, quote unquote. They both said they're trying right. to kill each other. So it's not like, you know, oh, yeah, it's playing around like they're it, both trying. It's to, personal. Yeah. yeah. Um, so neither of them seem like they're going to, to back down. Um, you know, they're both claiming that, you know, they had to prevent another coup and, um, this is the land of many coups since 1956, when Sudan gained its independence, there had been, I think there's been six attempts or six coups, probably more than 10 coup or failed coup attempts to give, uh, to, to overthrow the government. Can you give a bit more background on that? Cause I, I, I also found that pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, 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 the clear thing, and I, and I know we, we probably already touched on this already, but I guess it's worth talking about again. 
Um, Bashir had a reign of 30 years, toppled in 2019. Al-Bashir, his, when he left, there was a two-year grace period where the country was ran by just like technocrats and generals in the military. So that was between August 2019 and then uh, October 2021 when there was another military coup um, that takes place in, in, the, in the second coup. So, so there's the coup of Bashir. Technocrats were put in charge, basically. And then these guys, you know, are, are Hamechi and um and Burhan are you know they they uh are the ones who overthrow that basically the technocratic transitional government and mm-hmm. i guess the reason they were supposed to be working on a kind of pathway or a roadmap for a dilution of pro- power but just the 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 rivalry between the two you know warlords i mean that's what they are is um you know just just uh, made that impossible. And, and the funniest part, again, is is that both of these guys were working together during the coup. And In now they just they yeah. backstabbed each other, which is, I don't know, there's there's always some humor in that, even though it's dark. It's um, very Game of Thrones. Yeah. But, I mean, we're talking about just like a p- complete clip, uh, kleptocracy. It's, it's incredibly corrupt. It's one of the most corrupt places on Earth. Um, the political elite there just plunder, completely plunder the country, and and um, you know basically they're salespeople. They just sell it from Sudan's resource rich of gold and oil, um, you know good good arable air, air, arable land, and uh, the countries fight for resources. You know gold mines, uh, political clout, satisfying their different economic bases. I mean, you know, it's your, just your, um, your basic basic stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I want to talk I, about I think, that gold rush stuff, though. Because yeah, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the gold the gold part of it because it's an, it's an interesting it's an interesting part of the conflict and and maybe we can end after this. Yeah, sounds good. So I talked about this a little earlier. There's a region called the Sahel region, um, and it's been in a bit of a gold rush since 2012 because they discovered a super rich vein of gold that stretches from basic stretches across the entire sahara basically from east to west and and it really amped up gold mining in countries like mali and burkina faso and niger and chad and of course sudan and it's it's led to like a boom in small scale mining and even though people you know this like the small scale mining it's it's also named artisanal mining and and it's it's seen generally as this like old fashioned way of mining for gold but as far as africa goes it's actually pretty new and they're using a lot of like modern technology to assist in this like old fashioned mining we're not talking about like giant you know cat caterpillar diggers and stuff like that this is like old school mining but with like newfangled technology added on top and what it's doing is it's creating these really interesting communities that are forming around these mining sites for better or for worse, right? There's like good parts and bad parts to it. And hopefully I can touch on both. But, um, but these, these communities are made up of, you know, folks from all over Africa and, and other uh, regions. And it's mixing together a lot of different cultures and religions. So I guess that's, I guess, inherently a good thing, but obviously can 
creates some some problems in and of itself. Um, but it's also uh, made a lot of trade and communication networks in the region grow like crazy. So I mean, it's economically profitable. The unfortunate part of that about that is that you know singular groups control it, like the RSF in the case of Sudan. And so these big mining operations have basically caught the attention of of different organized groups like jihadists and jihadi revolts in Western Sahel, as well as you know, military juntas that have taken over places like Guinea uh, and Burkina Faso and, and Mali super recently. And uh, also interesting, I didn't, I didn't even know that, that they had any part in this until just researching this particular conflict, but Russian mercenary forces, specifically Wagner, have been showing interest in this region and in the gold uh, in this region for quite some time. Uh, and I, I find that pretty fascinating. So mining, you know, in Sudan in general goes way back, but you know, like we've said before that the economy mostly depended on agriculture. Um, but this gold is super in, important for just getting quick cash, like hard, quick cash needed to pay for, you know, imports and taxes. And, you know, there's been a lot of, um, a lot of different economic sanctions from the West that have been placed onto Sudan uh, in recent times, especially around the Darfur. Um, so they just need cash. So they've been running up on this this gold mine in the Sahel to, to get that cash. Interesting part, um, the Islamist regime in Sudan, which was in power since 1989, they were basically dependent on oil for a really long time. And they used the, the revenues from that for building roads and dams. But in 2011, when South Sudan split off, that really hurt the Sudanese economy because the oil earnings dropped from uh, $9.69 billion in 2010 to just $627 million in 2015. The reason for that is because a lot of those oil uh, uh, operations were in the South. And so to deal with the loss there, uh, Sudan, the north of Sudan, uh, tried to diversify its exports and focus on things like agriculture and mining, especially gold. So a lot of these things are coming together, right? The the split in 2011 of South Sudan kind of hurting its oil economy. Um, we've got uh, a lot of sanctions placed on Sudan because of you know, the, the, the genocide in, in Darfur and, and other reasons. So they need quick, hard cash. And then suddenly they find this big vein in 2012 uh, in, in the Sahel region where they can get a bunch of easy to find gold, which is crazy. And so the gold production blows up in 2012. Uh, in particular in Sudan, where they found gold in a place called Jebel, Jebel Amir in, in northern Darfur, uh, Darfur. And so they made this giant gold rush, and that started bringing you know, over the workers from Africa. A couple of things I didn't write down that I'd like to also mention. Again, the, the Wagner bit is really interesting. I, Russia has been basically stepping in uh, because the West has basically pulled out of uh, Sudan. You know, again, there's been a lot of like economic sanctions and diplomatic breakdowns from the West to Sudan. And for many years now, Russia has been involved in uh, in uh, Sudan. In particular, uh, they were trying to get a, um, a naval base set up on the Red Sea, and they wanted that really, really badly. Uh, and as far as like the start of the Ukrainian crisis, uh, Russian warships were seen in uh, Sudanese ports. Uh, that's where they, they parked their cars, so to speak. So 
it's pretty fascinating to see how like uh, Putin uh, and Russia have been kind of meddling a little bit into that country and and also tipping the scales uh, uh, in favor of some of the RSF factions, which I think is really fascinating because they have all the gold. Yeah, it's interesting because they're pl- they're kind of playing both parts. They they have relationships mm-hmm. with both with with both sides, but yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole thing it's kind of riddled with a lot of foreign influence right now. Um, you know, between between you know mainly the Gulf states, really. But yeah, I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia um, has been was it Saudi Arabia or UAE? If- forget the UAE, I think is, UAE. is probably the yeah, main was, kind UAE. of foreign poker been, in there so so this here's another thing uh, that I forgot to mention was that Sudan has been trying to use the gold economically but to to meet like the gold prices on the regular open market and also because of a lot of the sanctions that have been placed on them they've been struggling to keep up and they ended up having to print a lot of money which caused like a spike in inflation um, and so right now, the majority of the gold uh, that's being produced in Sudan is actually making its way out of Sudan through black markets at obviously a steep discount. Uh, and the UAE is, is one of the biggest beneficiaries of all of that Sudanese gold. Um, there's also a bunch of like random uh, like bad things, environmental and health concerns, right? Because these, these are kind of shitty operations in, in the mines and you know, they're using some old antiquated technologies in addition to newer ones. Like they're using mercury and uh, sulfur, uh, geez, what was it called? I forget, some other dangerous chemical uh, to, to extract the, the gold. So it's like killing people, but also poisoning the earth. So there's like a lot of, a lot of people that are protesting that uh, internationally. And so they got all this dirty gold money that they're, basically only able to sell through the black markets. Now they're beholden to the UAE uh, and other countries in that respect. And uh, I don't know. It's it's all really crazy. I love gold so much I lost my genitalia in an unfortunate smelting accident. <laughs> yeah, it's nuts, man. It's horrible. I don't like making jokes, but... Sometimes you do have to make jokes. Um, yeah, it's, just, it's awful. Yeah. It's it's terrible. Hopefully, it doesn't break out into a full scale conflict. That's the last thing that any country in Africa needs. Oh, I got one more. It's a war because a lot of these African countries are really suffering right now in terms of just their economic inflation. Poverty levels are rising intensely. It's really it's really bad since 2020 you know um you know you think developing economies are struggling i mean, excuse me developed economies are struggling look at the more impoverished countries they're getting it's 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 very they're very very they're getting very poor more right. poor i mean 750 dollars a year poor yeah that's what sudan is all right we will, I mean, hopefully this was... Oh, um, I got one more interesting fact for you. Sure. So remember I was saying that the uh, this like antique mining style uh, has been using like some interesting technologies. There was a shortage not too long ago of cheap metal detectors. It was so much of a shortage that uh, the British uh, um, army 
was complaining that they didn't have metal detectors to like mine sweep in Afghanistan when they were there because of the gold rush in Sudan. Like they literally bought them all. They bought all of the cheap metal detectors, which I think is fascinating. That is fascinating. That is, um, I guess, yeah, why wouldn't metal detectors pick up gold, right? Yeah, that's what they're that's really made for, right? For. <laughs> that's yeah. what you're hoping but to find when you're when you're. It's on just the funny because the they're detector. like, they're just doing like all these like, like what is considered like, I don't know, super old practice of of extracting gold from from gold veins, and but at the same time they're using things like smartphones to coordinate where to go and GPS, and also they bought literally all of the metal detectors that are available to buy. Every single metal detector. Yeah, like they bought them all. Well, it's an investment. Yeah, Discovery is an investment. Okay, let's wrap this thing up because it is tomorrow now. It is tomorrow well, now. <laughs> it is tomorrow at this point. And I am tired. All right. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Bro History. If you want to support the show, please complete the survey in the show notes that is the number one way to support our show fill out the survey survey monkey survey you fill out some questions you give us some feedback takes you a couple minutes at the end of it you put your email in and then there's a possibility that you get an email back saying congratulations you won 500 dollars in amazon money and then you think it's spam and delete it but don't delete that that email because that actually is real and then you could use it to buy a metal detector girlfriend a metal detector yeah you can get a metal detector before it's purchased in you know in sudan sudan then you can also rate and review the podcast make sure that you rate and review our podcast and enter a funny and insightful fact about gorkistan so we can say it on the show you can also use on Spotify, I noticed that there's something called Q&A for each episode. And we were actually delisted from Spotify for like two months. So hopefully you can find us again. There was some <laughs> error. Um, but yeah, we're on Spotify. We had never left. We just somehow got delisted from it. But we're back. Um, if you're on Spotify, you can leave um, like Q&As on the episode. So you can also communicate through that way. And then you can leave your funny Gorkistan fact right there. You can even think of maybe some of some, some songs about Gorkistan because this is a Broadway musical. Yep. That's the purpose of this country world building. Okay. Um, anything else? Nope. Okay. Bye, guys. See ya.